asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking traversing a broken housing market with Lance Lambert. Yeah, so anyone who has spent any time in their Zillow or their Redfin apps over the past few years knows that something is broken when it comes to home affordability. Or maybe they don't know it, maybe they don't have the, the data or the facts, but they feel it, right? As they're looking at homes, they might be overwhelmed given the current state of the housing market. They might be saying, how can home prices continue to skyrocket like they have? And even if prices taper off some, how am I supposed to save up a down payment in order to actually make a competitive offer? There are a lot of just big unknowns when it comes to the largest financial decision that many of us will make. But luckily, we're joined by Lance Lambert. Lance is the nation's foremost data journalist and beat reporter in the residential real estate space. He's been the real estate editor over at Fortune Magazine, and he's recently launched Resi Club to help folks to stay informed on the U.S. housing market. Lance, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And and you hit the nail on the head right there, which is that housing affordability has deteriorated at the fastest pace ever over the past two mm. years, yeah. and really three years. And so what happened there is we had an overheating on prices during the pandemic. And what was going on is that there was an elevation in the demand for housing space and, in, and so people, because they were working from home, could work in other, you know, go live in other markets, go buy a home in, let's say, you know, Lexington, Kentucky, if they were working in New York City. And so they, they were able to depart their job market for a more affordable place. So that's work from home arbitrage. Mm -hmm. And then the second part is the people who stayed in those markets, even the places that had net out migration, think San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, 
they, the people who remained wanted more space because they wanted to work. They were working from home. They needed more room in their apartments. And so there was this elevation in demand for housing space and the work from home arbitrage that occurred. And at the same time, you had rates go to the lowest ever this century, really over the past hundred plus years. And you had a lot of easy money rolling through the economy. And so appreciation, All that money. Yes, appreciation for housing for home prices on a national basis went up about 45% from March 2020 to June 2022. In 2021 it alone, we were up like 21%, which is the biggest year ever, one year jump ever in home prices. Yeah, studio apartments basically became persona non grata. Who wants them? Because you need a space to work. My, like <laughs> I distinctly remember the beginning of the pandemic, my little sister and her husband working at both of them trying to work from home in a studio apartment, and it was not working <laughs> very well. But Lance, sorry, we have to I'll ask you, one of the first questions we ask anybody who comes on the show is what's your craft beer equivalent? Because like we want to get into all this housing data, and I love that you're like chomping at the bit to get started. Yeah, but what, you know, I'll, I'm always ready to just like take off <laughs> To the <laughs> and, and so you want to know where I splurge on money, right? Exactly. Yes, sir. Yeah. So I am a long, I, I grew up in the Cincinnati area. I, I lived in New York before the pandemic hit. Uh, but when the pandemic hit, we had this guy named Joe Burrow that the Cincinnati Bengals drafted. Oh, yeah. And I was already ready to move home, but that even made me wanted to get home more. And I kind of just had a feeling because I also watch college football that we were going to turn it around with Joe Burrow. It just kind of felt like it. And so my area that I splurge on is anything Bengals. I like to go to some road <laughs> games. Uh, you know, I like to go to the home games. You know, I probably bought like six or seven jerseys over the past. Uh, <laughs> Dang. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm a tight wad. So, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, and you know, like somebody have a big interception, I'll just go buy their jersey. Uh, so I'm definitely um, splurging more on Cincinnati Bengals uh, just because it feels like this is, you know, a rare moment for us where we might be all right. Although, you know, by the time this publishes, we could have lost several games and our season could be lost. <laughs> You know, it hasn't been off to the best start. No, um, I, that is perfect. I, I love in particular your tight wad, but you are willing to splurge in this way. And by the way, you said like six or seven jerseys. Those jerseys are not cheap. No, so not, yeah. like that alone could have been your splurge. Well, but on top will, of that, you have the away games. A few of them are official and then a few are like the $15 from China. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you, gotta get, you get the knockoff yeah. where the color is not quite right. It's a... I've, I've done that before. <laughs> Matt, made, Matt made, might have yeah. made fun of me. I got one from our local soccer team in Atlanta and like the red was definitely was a, a little, lot more abrasive. It was a little pink. A yeah. little pinkier <laughs> than the, uh, <laughs> the red Atlanta United was rocking. But Lance, I feel like you caught us up to speed when it came to the reaction of housing prices. I feel like I got to the first half, which is house prices. Sure, yeah. Really, the thing that it deteriorated affordability wasn't just the house price jump. Really, if you break down the math, the biggest part is just the historic move up in interest rates. Right. Mm -hmm. Going from 2 3% mortgage rates to 4 to 5 to 6% to 7%. And then, you know, this fall to hit that eight handle. And when you do the math with the house price move and then also the move up in rates and the fact that incomes, the third variable, just hasn't kept up over the past three years, what you'll see is that we were in the fastest deterioration ever for housing affordability. This is the fastest move up in a three-year period ever. And we also 
have reached the most expensive uh, period for housing this century since 2000. But really, if you go back, this is the most expensive uh, housing has been for new home buyers since 1984 sure. and really only beat by 81 uh, 82 when mortgage rates were kind of pushing 16 17 18 percent at the you know at the peak of Paul Volcker's uh, interest rate hikes and so the affordability has really deteriorated quickly not just for housing but also autos which saw the same overheating for prices and the same rate shock as housing did and and the results there are interesting it you know it, it's not just one it, you know it's not all that you know housing is in a bad spot or housing is in a good spot when you kind of break it down there's a lot going on based on this deterioration in affordability uh, for starters the existing home sales now are lower than they were at the bottom of the 08 10 9 2010 2011 crash and what's happened is that affordability has deteriorated so quickly that people with two, three, four percent mortgage rates um, and their lower monthly payments are like, well, why would I sell my home and go buy something new? Yeah. Even and if so you had triplets, you're staying in the two, two because you don't want to give up the three percent rate. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, my my wife's pregnant, you know, not all our family knows, but hopefully by the time uh, you know, <laughs> publishes, we will have told everybody. Uh, but we have a three bedroom house and this would be our third kid. Um, and it just doesn't make sense for us to go buy something new right now. We'd rather just bunk bed it because uh, the math doesn't make sense. And so you've taken out what I call churn in the market, somebody selling to go buy something new. Sure. And so the existing resale market is just very constrained right now because there's not much coming up for sale. So that's the first part. The second part is if you look at uh, the home construction side, the new side of the market, not the existing, the new side where the home builders play, what they have done is unlike the existing side of the market, which has been very sticky on prices, the, the home builders have given up some on prices and in particular on a net effective basis for mortgage rate buy downs in particular in markets where there's a lot of new construction think austin think boise think phoenix think a lot of these places in the south that build a lot of homes and including dallas the builders have given up some on prices but they've also done these mortgage rate buy downs and they'll buy people down into the five handle and sometimes even into the four handle high fours to get people interested in, or getting them to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the people who would have normally looked at the existing resale market are now looking at the builders and looking there because affordability is so deteriorated and they're the one player in town that has you know made some affordability adjustments. And so new home sales have actually rebounded after last year's big, or in 2022's big cratering. There was a big plummet down in uh, new home sales and a huge spike in cancellation rates among builders. But by early 2023, the builders had kind of figured out the right mix of incentives, buy downs and price cuts to bring the buyers into the existing market. So new home construction on the single family side has been fairly resilient and we haven't seen many layoffs in new in uh, residential construction employment. One reason being that, you know, single family sales have rebounded in new construction 
And then the, also the fact that there is this huge pipeline of multifamily still under construction. And it was kind of uh, planned uh, back when rates were lower. So that's still in the pipeline. And why that matters is from an economic perspective, housing is one of the areas where the Fed's rate policy has normally transmitted into the rest of the economy. And so how it's normally worked is the Fed jacks up rates, uh, affordability deteriorates, new home sales fall way down, builders pull back on construction, uh, you know, there's some there's a lot of layoffs in residential construction employment. Those people spend less than the rest of the economy and that kind of trickles through. We're not seeing that right now. We've seen the deterioration in affordability, but builders have made the the cycle rolled over on affordability because they made some affordability adjustments yeah. and they were able to keep volume transactions and employment okay. moving. So that's the okay. So quick part. question then. I, I think I saw so according to data from the Census Bureau, like recent permits and starts, they seem to be down from a couple of years ago. So it does seem like construction has maintained, but as far as new construction, as far as new permits, those seem to be declining compared to what we saw a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. There's been some there, but on the single family side. Uh, the completions have held steady. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was happening during the pandemic is that starts and um, also sales were outstripping the capacity to build. And uh, the time to completion for these new homes got really high. And so what you've seen is you've seen the sales come down from the frothy pandemic tops and the permits come down from the frothy pandemic tops, but you have seen completions hold steady. And uh, what 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 had to happen there is that the time to completion is starting to normalize. Builders are able to build the homes faster. And so, you know, the hit there hasn't been that big uh, when adjusting for how high it got during the pandemic. If you compare it to 2019 levels on the starts and the permits, you start to get a bit of a different story. Is is part of that that they're building smaller houses? I've read more about it seems like new home builds are for the first time in a long time, for the first time in like 50, 60 years, becoming they're like smaller homes are being built. And that seems to be given kind of how things have gotten locked up and affordability has become a problem. Maybe that's at least one part of a solution. Yeah. So what we've seen since really about 2018 is that gradually builders have been building smaller homes. Uh, we've kind of seen a rolling over on the square footage for the average home, and it's been moving down not just uh, you know on a national aggregate, but really almost every market is getting smaller. Um, and that is probably going to continue to accelerate now that affordability has just deteriorated to the levels it has gotten to. Um, but this has been a steady move down. And we're not talking like drastic moves. We're talking like 2-3% contraction per year in square footage. So it adds up, you know, if you look at it from now versus 2018, but it's a very gradual move down. We're kind of talking about, the, I guess, overall the supply of housing and how that's impacted uh, housing affordability. How have investors been impacting what's happening in the in the housing market? Do you think the different Wall Street firms out there investing in single family homes, have they had a big effect on the lack of inventory for owner occupants? So on a national basis, uh, institutional home buyers, those with you know at least a thousand homes in their inventory, uh, they own about 
0.73% of the national single-family housing stock, according to Parcel Labs data. So they're not a huge amount of the total housing stock. Except for where we live here in Atlanta, right? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's what I'm getting to, okay. is that in Atlanta, they own 4.4% of the single-family housing stock. And if you look at it based on a zip code level, there are around 11 zip codes in the Atlanta area where they own about half of the single family rental stock. And so my view on institutional home buyers is that I believe on a nationally aggregated basis, they're probably not moving the needle a ton, but on a regional basis and in certain specific pockets, they are probably the marginal home buyer in some of these areas where they've kind of all piled into. And I think with Atlanta in particular, they're probably, you know, running their numbers and they're like, oh, Atlanta has good population growth. Mm -hmm. Oh, Atlanta has good rental growth. Oh, Atlanta has good home appreciation growth. Oh, and by the way, affordability in Atlanta relative to where some of these buyers are coming from is kind of in a good spot and the rent yields just work out great. And so a lot of them have probably just piled into the market because they're all seeing the same aggregate data. That's the view of kind of parcel labs. Yeah. Um, and I think they're probably right. And so I, I think they have an outsized impact in some markets. And I think those markets are probably Charlotte, Atlanta, Tampa, Dallas, Phoenix, and I'm missing one more. It might be like Houston, but really you would probably think Raleigh and Jacksonville are right there too. Hmm. Uh, but the, those, you know, the states in, you know, the Sun Belt that are kind of like high growth states that have good long-term out outlooks and reasonable uh, state laws in, for, you know, for, for landlords is probably, you know, what they're after. And really at the end of the day, it's about those yields. Can they get the returns on the capital they want? And those have been some of the markets over the past several years that they've been able to. And if you zoom out, what occurred during the pandemic is we saw a huge rush of investors, everybody from, you know, the mom and pops, the people who want to do, you know, amateur Airbnb folks. Um, and then you also saw it on the institutional side. And what occurred is there was a very easy access to capital during that, you know, low rate, high stimulus period. There was the low rates, soaring rents, and high home appreciation. And when you add all those factors in, the yields were just amazing. And so, you know, a lot of the biggest buyers, American Homes for Rent, Invitation Homes, Amherst, Tricon, you know, they were out there buying. And now we, what we've seen is we've seen rates move very high. Home prices have stayed high. Rents relative to home prices are very strained. And there's not a lot of inventory on the market. And so there's not a lot out there available for sale and not a lot of it that is out there are pencils. And remember, these people often spend a lot of money on renovations too. And renovations and repairs are very expensive given the inflationary run and the move up uh, in capital cost on that side. We're seeing less institutional home buying right now. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned rents. And that is something that, yeah, during the the really heart of the pandemic rents were skyrocketing and we had certainly a lot of listeners reaching out like what, what do i do how do i push back against these crazy rent increases but now rents are softening and in fact like falling 
year over year, which is good for when we're talking about the affordability for for folks who are, are looking to rent. Um, but that doesn't necessarily help home buyers. But I'm I'm curious, like to hear your thoughts on we 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 have this massive spread now between the average cost monthly cost of a mortgage versus the monthly cost of rent, especially in places like California. Um, so is is renting a superior option for for so many people who are like I want to own a home? Is, is patience the the best way to proceed given kind of how much cheaper rents are relative to the home? Yeah. So I want to be careful here. You know, one of the things I try to do in the space is be a little bit more of a journalist, a little less of an analyst and try to not make too many big predictions. That way I can, you know, kind of uh, spread other people's views and be a good place for people to get exposed to a lot of different viewpoints. But I will say in terms of the data, we have seen a softening of rents and rent growth. That is true. We've seen some falling rents on the multifamily side in very big boom towns. Think Austin, think Boise, Phoenix, some of those places with a lot of multifamily inventory coming into the market. But we have continued to see uh, rising prices for single family rents. And, you know, Invitation Homes, which they own almost 90,000 single family rentals, if you look at their earnings report, year over year, single family rents and theirs on average were up 6%. And so I, I think it's important to remember that there is a bifurcation happening throughout all of housing right now. And on one of those fault lines is multi versus single family. And single family, it appears, and at least among a lot of the investors I also talk to, they think there is upward momentum on single family rents. Wow. And, uh, you know, so the last time that the cost to buy versus rent got this strained, which right now a new monthly mortgage is substantially more expensive than renting the same home in most of the country right now. The last time that happened was 06, 07, 08. And the gap there closed very quickly because pr house prices crashed and rents continued to rise. Now, maybe they're looking through rose-colored glasses, but a lot of them think that there isn't going to be the downward momentum on house prices because this time we don't have the toxic mortgages. Think the Ninja Loans. We don't have that this time like we did uh, in the lead-up to the 08 crash. And also in the lead-up to the 08 crash, active listings inventory had been building for several years and there was substantially more on the market and then when you had the foreclosure crisis that occurred in the job loss recession it created this perfect storm to pull house prices down that's right industry experts now think that's less likely for you know uh, a material correction in house prices and then and they're talking on a national basis uh, but they think it's more likely that rents will do the work to help to narrow the gap. And again, maybe that that's rose-colored glasses, but at least that's the uh, a view that's shared a lot among the industry. And again, we're, I'm talking single family here. Multi is a very different story. It's a different and beast. there's a tremendous amount of supply on the multifamily side that's still making its way into the market over not just the next, you know, the, the last six months, but really 12 uh, 18 months out still. Sure. That being said, there are still some markets that have seen some declines and we'll actually uh, ask you about that as well as some other 
wisdom, hopefully, that we can give to our listeners on how it is that they can go about purchasing a home, especially for those first-time home buyers. And we'll get to all of that right after this. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money i'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans we always like to get the families together matt for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer we've already got that trip to saint simon's on the calendar pumped for that but sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, we're back from the break. We're still talking about traversing a broken housing market with expert Lance Lambert. And, and Lance, let's talk about uh, kind of the, you, you've mentioned the term bifurcation. And one of the interesting things, all real estate is local, right? And that can be hyper-local, in the, for instance, in Atlanta, where we live. Like certain parts of Atlanta have seen outsized growth. Other parts have seen not nearly as much. Or that can be kind of town to town. Some towns were boom towns during COVID. You mentioned Boise and Austin being a couple of those. There's a bifurcation there, right? Some of those, I think you equated Austin to being like a meme stock. Uh, the way it kind of it shot up in value all around Austin, I saw all these investors talking about how they were buying up all this stuff in Austin. Well, now Austin is seeing a decline when other parts of the country are not. Is that correct? Can you talk about kind of the the local realities of real estate? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So 
on a national basis, house prices since, you know, the 2022 peak, you know, they started to correct a bit um, in the second half of 2022 down, let's say, four or five percent, um, according to Kay Schiller and Freddie Mac. Uh, but they then rebounded in the first half of 2023 this year and kind of made up for the gains that fell off. So on a national basis, house prices have kind of been frozen, uh, essentially, since, uh, you know, summer of 2022. They gave up some, then they rebounded. But really, if you look at these different indices, we might be up 1%, 2%, a half a percent since the 2022 peak based on the indice you look at, but on a regional basis, the bifurcation has been really historic. So we've had some markets like Hartford, Connecticut, where house prices are up about 8%, 9% since the 2022 peak. And then you have markets like Austin, Texas, that at least according to the latest Zillow data is down 18% from the peak. Wow. <laughs> now, some indices have them down closer to 14 or 13%, but Austin has seen a material correction in house prices. Now, they're still up a lot. Austin's still up like 42, 40% since March 2020. But what happened is in the first 24 months of the pandemic, say, they were up about 68, 70% for prices. And so Austin just got ahead of its, you know, it got ahead of its skis. Uh, prices went up too much. There was a lot of investors pouring in, a lot of people moving in from California uh, during the pandemic remote work period, uh, the lockdowns that just, did, you know, Austin seemed cheap to them. So they were driving up prices just really fast and too far beyond local fundamentals. And by the time mortgage rates started to move up, Austin, on a historical basis, was overvalued, according to Moody's Analytics, by about 60% from historical fundamentals. And so that strained fundamentals and the fact that locals just could no longer really afford a home, and then you had fewer of the people from the outside pouring in, uh, and you know, and investors kind of also got over their skis. So we're going through that correction in Austin, and it really started summer of 2022, and it's carried over to now. Um, and we're in the seasonal soft period for 2023, so I would expect these next few months to still be fairly soft for Austin. Isn't isn't that the sign, at least to a certain extent, Lance, of a healthy market that some a market can get out over its skis, and then maybe the speculators, the people who go in and buy top dollar, banking on like continued ridiculous growth they're the ones who get burned right that that is what happens oftentimes i feel like i'm like i said i'm seeing some investors being like a year ago austin 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 and now some of those folks who bought at the peak they're having a tough time and not that i wish that on them but i, I feel like there is a reality as an investor that you, you you have to be thoughtful about like the long-term approach and if you're buying hoping to make a quick buck you might lose out yeah and and i i think you hit the nail on the head which is that uh Housing is not a meme stock. And what we have seen uh, in the first two years of the pandemic, that level of house price growth, that was unhealthy. We do not want to see that. That is that is not good. Now, maybe if you're an investor, maybe you kind of like to have seen that. But, you know, it's not sustainable long term to have that. And I think one of the telltale signs of trouble in a real estate market is when you start talking to investors and you start finding out that they are buying homes 
that will cash flow. That means the revenue they will make on a monthly basis is less than what they can charge in rent. Yep. And so that's what, you know, people like Michael Zuber over at one rental at a time call an alligator property, meaning it's costing the investor money every month. And if an investor has two, three, four of those, that that that's a lot of money going out a month. Now, an investor might be doing that because they're saying to themselves, wow, look at how fast home prices are going up. I'm going to make a fortune if I just hold these, even if I'm burning money every month. But what happens is into a housing correction, once the fundamentals have gone too far and uh, there's too many of that, you know, the, the investors who bought there speculating like that, it can put downward momentum on a market. And I think that's what's happening in Austin. And I had been talking to investors um, and real estate agents who had told me they were seeing alligator properties occurring where Austin had not just went up 68% over the past, in the first two years of the pandemic. But if you zoom out, Austin was one of the few markets that did not bust following 08. They only fell like 8% during the 08 crash error. And they had climbed up like 220% over the past 10 years. So investors who were in that market made a fortune. Then there was a big run up occurring during the pandemic. And there was just that FOMO that occurred where it's like, oh, you can't miss in Austin. This city is, you know, taking off. And even if I can't make the money up in rent, you know, throwing a hundred bucks a month or 200 a month on these homes isn't going to hurt me because I'm making it up on the appreciation. And once the the music stops, uh, that, that's when you have trouble. And that's what's occurred in sure, Austin. Sure, sure. Well, forget the, the speculators and like even forget the investors. What about just the, the honest, good folks that are trying <laughs> to buy a home? What would you say to our listeners out there? They want to buy their first place and they've been saving up, but they're nervous that they might make their purchase. And then we might see a meaningful correction uh, or, or even years without any price growth. Do you think that that's a legit worry for, for those folks who are buying for more personal reasons? Or is that something that they probably shouldn't be too concerned about? I want to start off with one thing, which is I cover mortgage rate forecast and house price forecast, and I do it religiously. And in my opinion, I don't think anybody in the country tracks down more housing and mortgage rate forecasts than I do. And I will tell you, we have been through a three-year period where they are missing left and right in every mm -hmm. direction. And I think the experts have really gotten house prices and mortgage rates wrong over the past mm -hmm. couple of years. I think it's a lot of it's because of the um, unprecedented um, you know, things that occurred during the pandemic with the lockdowns, the amount of stimulus money, how low rates went, uh, you know, the inflationary shock, all, all of that plus work from home has made it really hard to predict. So the first thing I want to say is I don't, I'm not sure anybody really quite knows where house prices and mortgage rates are going to go in the next six months, 12 months, let alone three, four years. So that's the first part is I think the forecast have really struggled here and I don't want to make a prediction on the house prices and rates. Uh, the second thing is I try to not get into this game of is it a good time to buy? Is it a bad time to buy? My view is that there's always somebody that it is a good time to buy. And there is always somebody that it's a bad time to buy. And it really comes down to personal financial circumstances. Um, and I think the number one thing to do if you want to become a homeowner is to really work on your personal wealth, 
your personal income, job prospects, entrepreneurial prospects, and then also your relationships. Uh, you know, the number one thing that drives people to have to sell is they have a divorce you know, or a job re relocation. Um, and so I, I think it really, you know, housing is a little bit less on trying to game mortgage rates and house prices and more on trying to work on yourself, on your personal uh, yeah. financial circumstances and also, you know, your relationship. I 100 percent agree with you. I think the one the one caveat I would throw in there is just you might want to have a longer timeline of ownership for the house that you buy. Typically, maybe five to seven years is good enough. Like, I think I'm going to stay here for that long. But now maybe the the upper uh, end of that timeline is important. Maybe saying I'll, I'll, I will, I'm okay being in this house seven to 10 years if there's a correction that I'm not expecting. Can you talk about, talk about mortgage rates for just a second, Lance? So you talked about how difficult it is to predict where they're going. But I guess one thing that we can see in the data is the difference between rates on like 30-year fixed rate mortgage and adjustable rate mortgages and adjustable rate mortgages for a, a lot of years were just kind of like silly to really even think about because like well if I can lock in a, a 30 year mortgage at three and a quarter why am I going to look at the adjustable rate mortgage and even chance it but but now as rates have ticked up and the gap has grown do they look more attractive in your opinion uh, you know there's nothing wrong with getting a fixed rate and then if rates come down refinancing and, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure how enticing the variable rates have been to people. If you look at like the Freddie Mac data, it hasn't really taken off that much since the rates have kind of moved up. But I do think a lot of people buying over the past 12 months have really thought, you know what, at some point rates will probably come down and I'll be able to refi. Um, you know, the only thing I would say is what I've been saying for a while now, which is, take people's mortgage rate forecast with a grain of salt. You know, I think there was a lot of people last year who were telling people, hey, rates are going to come right back down into the fours really quick. Just go ahead and buy this home. And so what occurred is a lot of people who bought in 2022 thought that rates would come down this year and they'd be able to refi. Well, what actually occurred is that rates even went even yeah. higher. <laughs> so on one hand, they didn't get to refi. But on the other hand, had they waited another year, they would have had to get even a higher rate if they bought and maybe higher house prices depending on their market or maybe lower depending on the yeah. market. And, and so I, I would say take some things with a grain of salt and then, you know, be financially prepared to pay whatever your agreed upon monthly uh, principal and interest payment is. If it if your monthly payment uh, principal and interest is twenty eight hundred a month, be prepared financially to pay that for a prolonged period or even longer than maybe you will actually have to. But I would say mentally prepare yourself to just continue to make that payment. And then if rates come down and you're able to refi, you know, treat it as like a financial blessing um, instead of yeah. a guarantee. No, I think that's great advice. I think too many people are being told also by real estate professionals, whether it's a realtor or a mortgage broker, hey, no, you're totally going to be able to refinance next year. It's not going to be a problem. You're going to save two points and this is going to save you this, this much on your monthly payment. And people are buying the home saying, all right, I can slog through it for a year. But then maybe that's not, <laughs> that's not the case. Like you said, maybe rates keep going up. Where do they go from here? Who knows? That's anybody's guess. But Lance, we've got a couple more questions we want to get to. And I mentioned realtors. We, we specifically want to talk about that recent ruling and how that might, uh, the, the ruling in court about how that might impact realtor fees and maybe saving consumers a lot of money. We'll talk uh, a little bit more with Lance right after this.
When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Kachava is the all-in-one superfood shake made up of high-quality plant-based nutrients. It's got greens, superfruits, plant proteins, antioxidants, adaptogens, probiotics, and in other words, everything your body craves to feel your best. This is where Kachava really earns their 52,000 plus five-star reviews. It tastes amazing. It's creamy and smooth with just water, and it comes in five delicious flavors. You can choose from chocolate, vanilla, chai, matcha, and coconut acai. Kachava is offering How to Money listeners 10% off for a limited time. I've been using Kachava in breakfast smoothies in the morning recently. It's just so nice to pack in a bunch of nutrients early in the a.m. in a way that's satisfying and energizing. So if you want to optimize your breakfast, your workout shake, be sure to check out Kachava. Just go to Kachava dot com slash how to money that's spelled k-a-c-h-a-v-a and get 10 percent off your first order that's k-a-c-h-a-v-a dot com slash how to money i'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans we always like to get the families together matt for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer we've already got that trip to saint simon's on the calendar pump for that but sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, we are back. Again, we're talking with Lance Lambert, formerly with Fortune, now has launched Resi Club. And uh, Lance, let's talk about realtors. Specifically, we wanted to mention like that recent legal ruling against the National Association of Realtors. Like it seems like the fallout from this could be pretty massive for not only for real estate agents and what it is that they earn, but also for buyers and sellers. The amounts that consumers could save would be a significant amount of money. Do you have some some thoughts there? Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, a Missouri jury, a federal uh, case. They awarded the plaintiffs in the uh, uh, Sitzer or Burnett uh, buyer broker commission uh, action lawsuit around like, I think it was $1.78 billion in damages. And that was against Keller Williams, Home Services of America, and the National Association of Realtors. And they accused them of conspiring to inflate commission rates. And the jury uh, agreed. And uh, so essentially how real estate has worked for a really long time is that there's a 3% fee uh, for the buyer's agent and then a 3% fee 
for the seller's agent. So 6% of the total uh, sale price. And usually that has always been paid by the seller. And the seller's kind of been stuck paying the buyer's agent. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's caused a lot of frustration over years. Uh, and there have been ways to get around it. But the accusation that the, uh, you know, the plaintiffs made in this case is that, you know, the agents and National Association of Realtors was essentially acting as like a cartel forcing people into this type of agreement. And I think what comes out of this, in my opinion, is I think that ruling was an earthquake felt by the industry. Um, and I think now we're just going to figure out, was it a small quake <laughs> or was it the first tremor and something much, much bigger? And so what's going to occur from here is years of lawsuits. There's going to be lawsuits against numerous organizations. Um, and we're going to have to kind of figure out uh, how this does or doesn't change uh, the real estate industry. I think for the immediate buyer, buyer and seller, it probably isn't having necessarily a huge impact because uh, we, you know, I mean, the judge still kind of has to uh, uh, rule on the case and it's already going to be appealed. And, um, but I, I think it's just uncertainty has really been brought into the market. And I think it's really being felt mostly by the industry and less so by the buyers and yeah. sellers. And the industry just kind of wants to figure out how, you know, how how will this change the rules? For well, them? and let's be honest, the transaction costs for buyers and sellers kind of also insulate activity in the housing market. And because it is expensive to buy or to sell, that's just one other reason maybe to stay put a little bit longer. And when you look at worldwide, kind of what realtors, the, the percentage of the transaction that a realtor makes, like they're they're higher in the United States than pretty much anywhere else. Um, so it, not that Matt and I are against realtors. We love realtors. We've had great realtor experiences. But that is, I, I'm curious to see the shakeout as well. You actually, you talked to the CEO of Redfin uh, kind of not too long after that ruling came out. What was that like? And, and what's his perspective? Because Redfin is has kind of been at the forefront of trying to reduce broker fees and make home buying kind of more consumer friendly. Yeah, so... Uh, he before the ruling, uh, you know, they had pulled out from the National Association of Realtors. And when I say they, I mean Redfin. And it was really, you know, on many fronts, but, you know, the sexual uh, harassment allegations against the National Association of Realtors, uh, just some complaints about how the industry has done things. Um, you know, Glenn over at Redfin hasn't felt great about that. Um, but in terms of, you know, where things kind of go from here, I think Glenn is kind of in the same boat of what I said is there's just a lot of uncertainty. I think Redfin feels like they are prepared with whatever direction it goes. You know, this has obviously been one of the things uh, that they've been pushing against the industry and they've kind of tried to be a discount, a discount uh, company player in the space. Um, and then, you know, Glenn's view, I asked him if he thought the National Association of Realtors was a cartel. Um, he didn't say it was a cartel, but what he did say is there is a cartel in housing, in his view, and it's homeowners, he says, uh, who have fought against, um, you know, zoning and they fought against new developments uh, for many decades and, you know, in his view, that's hurt the housing supply of the market and helped to, you know, deteriorate affordability. And of course, that deterioration and affordability is really the thing 
you know, now that people are really up in yeah. arms about. Uh, so I, I thought it was an interesting conversation with Glenn. Yeah, um, I don't think he's wrong on that, by the way. I mean, when you think about there's a lot of nimbyism, there's a lot of aversion to changing zoning laws or to making it easier to build things. Even fortunately, we've seen a lot of uptick in uh, cities, municipalities being OK with accessory dwelling units. And, and that is adding some supply. But that is a huge problem. Even where Matt and I live, there's a proposal to build like a 120 unit apartment building. And it's being fought tooth and nail by the folks who live in the general vicinity. No, we don't need this density. We we don't want that here um, but the reality is like while you're insulating and you're increasing your own property values you're dooming the next generation to exorbitant house prices yeah it was interesting to see uh glenn uh call homeowners uh a, the, the the actual cartel in housing uh but yeah so i i think uh where we are in housing is that affordability is very deteriorated people are very upset and uh, the real estate agents are probably going to take some punches from the crowd because people are just so upset with where housing affordability is. And really, I want to also say that this is kind of kicking the industry when they're down right now. Uh, existing and uh, resale uh, transactions are super low right now. Uh, mortgage purchase applications at the end of October, early November were at the lowest level since 1996. So there's just not a lot of churn happening in the market and there's not a lot of the transactions occurring. So I think that's why the industry is also kind of frustrated because this is just occurring at a very, uh, you know, uh, interesting time for them, a, a kind of a low point for them. It, you know, it kind of feels like they're getting kicked while they're down. Yeah. OK, so Lance, you said you weren't really willing to make housing price predictions or even rate <laughs> predictions where, you know, given where things might be going. What have you been hearing from other folks out there so, <laughs> who I, do I, make I predictions, will, right? I will make a little bit of one prediction. Okay, let's hear it. Which is, I do believe that the U.S. housing market, which since summer 2022 has been very bifurcated regionally, I expect that to continue. I think as long as there's not a substantial shift in the market, whether that's a breaking in labor or a swift moving down in rates. So it's like, let's say all else being equal, like we're just kind of where we are today, but for a prolonged period, like let's say another 12 months, I would expect some markets to see prices fall some, and I would expect some other markets to continue to see prices raise, rise. And I think what would occur is the markets that are gonna give up some, they probably will be fairly stale in the spring. And then in the seasonally weaker fall periods, that's when they'll kind of give up on the prices. And then I think the markets that are going to continue to see prices increase, like I think Hartford, Connecticut's going higher. Um, I think what will happen there is that they'll be pretty stale at the end of the years in the falls. And then in the springs, they'll be kind of bustling and a lot of bidding wars because there's just not enough inventory. So the thing that I would say to watch, three things. One, the bond market and mortgage rates. Because if that were to move dramatically in one direct direction or the other, that would shift the environment. Two, watch the jobs market, watch unemployment. If that were to break one way or the other, that could move things as well. And then the third thing is watch local inventory levels. Austin, which is the market that's giving up on prices, they have seen inventory go back to pre-pandemic inventory levels, while Hartford, Connecticut, is down 78, 80% for inventory from now versus pre-pandemic. And so what that means in Hartford, Connecticut, for every one home currently on the market in Hartford, Connecticut, there were four homes for sale in 2019. 
So just three homes disappearing from active listings, essentially. And uh, and so how can you track this down to a regional level? Well, there's this guy called Lance Lambert. I mean, <laughs> he has this newsletter called Resi Club. And I publish this stuff continuously. And I look at it very much on a regional level. And my view is I've been able to catch every single price correction that has occurred in the U.S. down to a county level over the past uh, 18 months based on how I kind of watch active listing data. And, and, and so if you would really like the uh, metro and county level and even some of the zip code data that I'm still kind of working on because I just launched this four weeks ago, uh, but if you would like that, uh, subscribe to Resi Club. And then the, the premium membership is where I really give a lot of this robust data. And that's $150 a year to get access to my Lance Lambert house price tracker and Lance Lambert inventory tracker. Lance, it's great information, man. Like I as as a, a like a armchair quarterback on this stuff like i like to nerd out on it i want to hear it like aggregate expert information and you do such a great job of compiling that and sending it out like in in a world that is newsletter heavy uh yours is one that i read with regularity so thank you for what you do and what is there anything else you want our listeners to know uh about you and what you're up to before we uh say goodbye the other thing i would say about resi club is so i have that pro offering which is for people who really want to get the regional data uh, but for people who don't want to pay for pro and they just kind of want to read my work, I still do five articles a week. And a lot of this is looking at uh, some of it does have some of the regional data. I kind of sprinkle that in. But, I, you know, I cover U.S. home builders. I cover institutional home buyers better than anybody in the country. I'm really tapped in there to what's happening on the institutional side down to a regional level. And then I also, you know, I cover the prop techs, real estate startups. Uh, really, if you kind of are really hungry for uh, housing information and what's going on with the biggest players in it, I, I'd say subscribe to Resi Club. Uh, you know, I have a lot of good content there for free. That's right. And you do sprinkle a little bit in there to give everyone a little taste of uh, what they could be uh, <laughs> receiving where they'd upgrade. Uh, but Lance, thank you so much for talking to us. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. All right, man, Lance Lambert, we were off to the races when it came to talking about housing. I was like, listen, Lance, there's this thing called the craft beer equivalent we have to talk about before we keep talking about housing. He's like, we don't have time for personal <laughs> personal banter. We got to talk about the goods. That's right. No, I really do appreciate, man, Lance's depth of knowledge and his passion for housing real estate here in the U.S. But uh, yeah, did you have a big takeaway from our conversation man, with yeah. Mr. Lambert No, he today? definitely, I mean, he definitely knows a lot, right? It's it's pretty pretty clear that he like studies, eats, breathes, and sleeps the data uh, about what's going on in the housing market, what's going on with interest rates, predictions, prognostications. And on that front, my big takeaway was that the experts aren't always right. And so- Sometimes they're wrong. What I love about Lance is he's kind of synthesizing the data. He's looking at what all the experts are saying, and he's kind of saying, hmm, he's putting his finger to the wind. Does that seem right? Or when I uh, when I aggregate all of these things, is that true? And and he, he basically said the experts have been badly wrong. Understandable too, right? Because we've been in like this, a really weird economy over the past three years. COVID threw a wrench in everybody's predictions about something, everything. Something that we've never experienced before. Right. It's so under understandable. So not, not trying to throw shade on some of those, some of those experts, but it is also important to note to not make a decision based on what the experts are saying. And I think a lot of people have been prone to do that. Oh yeah. Saying, oh, this is the hot market. Oh, this is, oh, interest rates are definitely going to go down. Well, then I should buy. And, and you have to be careful. And, and one of the things that Lance, Lance said is it's all about 
your own personal uh, personal finance situation. Hey, you can't have multiple big takeaways during this episode. <laughs> you, well, I'll, I'll let you finish. But well, even the yeah. thing, and I'm going to say one more thing. Even the thing he said. Okay, three takeaways. Go ahead. All right. Even the thing he said at the end, <laughs> the three things to watch about where the housing market's going. I think he's spot on. I don't think there are three better metrics than the mortgage rates. Uh, jobs and unemployment, and local inventory. If you're trying to figure out what's going to happen in your local housing market, not that you can predict it, but if you're kind of like looking for an inkling of where things are headed, those are the three metrics really to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. My big singular take, big takeaway <laughs> for this episode was going to be the fact that I think it can be an overwhelming task to think through, is now the right time for us to move? Is now the time that we're going to buy a house? And I love what Lance said. And I was actually a little surprised because he is so knee deep into the data, but he was able to back out and say, no, it comes down to your personal circumstances personal finance. That's what we're talking about here. That is at the core of what it is that we talk about. And I love that he was able to back out and say, well, ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes down to an individual's ability to make the payments on a property that they're looking to purchase. It comes down to so many additional things other than whether or not the market's hot, where exactly rates are. It comes down to whether or not you're going to have a kid, uh, how many kids you're going to have in the coming years. It comes down to a, a job relocation. It comes down to wanting to be closer to family because those remaining years, perhaps to be close to, to your parents are more important yeah. than your ability to maybe save a little bit more and to achieve, say, fire uh, a little more aggressively. A lot there, of intangibles. and it, Yeah, there it, are so many of those personal factors that we all have to weigh, and there is no perfect scale or measure that says, well, if it's kids, then that trumps this. No, it comes down to the individual. Yeah. It comes down to each family to decide whether if, or not it's going to work for if them. If you look on YouTube and see anybody talking about the housing market, it's always like the grimmest face and like the crash. Uh, the crash is always the word that's used. The housing market crashed. The looming pending crash and like uh i think based on what what lance is saying like unless there are sudden movements upward in interest rates or something like that like i don't i don't see a crash coming because we still lack inventory so uh, those are often just clickbaity sort of things just uh, no focus on your fundamentals and it's important to kind of understand what's going on in the housing market and what what's led us to this point and and i think i can shed some light on where things are potentially going to go in the future, but also don't bank on exactly what people are telling you about but what even, the future but holds. Even still, like it comes, like folks will start speculating, and they're making decisions outside of their own personal factors, yeah. and that's when I think. Uh, it can really end up coming back to bite you. And I do think some of that speculation is actually going to lead to some of the corrections that are going to help some people. Some of the previous speculation that we've seen up, yeah. up until this point. And it's going to exactly. help some of the folks who have been on the sidelines maybe be able to afford a home that they're currently unable to afford. All right, man. The beer that you and I enjoyed during this episode was by Other Half. This one was Juice Lovers. Big thanks to Jason. Joel, what were your thoughts on this one? So this beer has one of my favorite all-time hops in it, Nelson. And oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, I love that hop. It's what's the Nelson hop taste like? It's just great, good, uh, delicious. <laughs> like man, I, I I am no super taster, so I don't necessarily have a uh, wonderful uh, uh, explanation for it. It definitely has like some pineapple vibes for sure, though. Nelson and Savine. Aren't you tasting the pineapple in this one? No, there's certainly. It's called Juice Lovers. Juice Lovers. It's got so many of those citrus, yes. like citrus, pineapple. Actually, on the side here, it also says white wine. I can get behind that too. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Which I'd... is funny because I don't ever drink white wine, but white wine in beer, I'm like down with that. So oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, I, I love this one, and this one was actually a, kind of more approachable than some of the other half beers, but still like luxurious in the way it tastes. Yeah, super juicy. This one was delicious. Normally, we kind of recommend IPAs for those who have tried a bunch of different craft beers before, but this is the type of IPA that I think someone who is newer to IPAs can get into uh, because it doesn't have that super sharp hot bite. Uh, It does have so many of those juicy notes. It's not abrasive in like any way. 
Yeah, so good. But that's going to be it, buddy, for this episode. We'll make sure to link to Lance's site, any of the different resources he may have mentioned up on the show notes for this episode at howtomoney.com. And that's going to be it for this one, buddy. So until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.